Hello there. Before we get started, we just wanted to remind you once more about our latest live show taking place this Sunday, January 26th at the Bell House in Gowanus, Brooklyn. We are so excited for this show. It's called Landmarks Live. Wait, Greg, don't you mean landmarks live? They're they're kind of jazz hands. <laughs> you gotta have jazz hands and like explosions coming out of your body as you say it. And it's gonna be an audiovisual extravaganza celebrating the surprising and sometimes mysterious world of New York City landmarks. And we have an extraordinary lineup of special guests. For full information, including that VIP lineup, head to thebellhouseny.com. That's the website of The Bell House in Gowanus. So get your tickets for Sunday, January 26th, and we'll see you at The Bell House. Episode 308 of The Bowery Boys, Andrew Carnegie, and New York's Public Libraries. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And Greg, today we are finally tackling a subject uh, that's very dear to us, library lovers that we are. It's a subject that you could say is actually overdue. This is the story of Andrew Carnegie, one of the richest men who have ever lived, and his record-shattering gifts to communities around the world and here in New York to help establish public libraries. His generosity would pay for the construction of nearly 1,700 libraries in the United States alone, and he'd pay for another 800 in other English-speaking countries. And lest you gloss over those numbers, I'm just going to repeat them for a second. Nearly 1,700 libraries in the United States. He paid for their construction. It's an enormous gift. And he would also give an enormous gift here in New York City, where in 1901, he would give more than $5 million to the city to expand the new and developing library systems throughout New York City. But Mr. Carnegie, the industrialist, steel baron, philanthropist, whatever you want to call him, wouldn't simply give the money away to any community that just asked for it. There were some strings attached, strings that tied these communities directly into Carnegie's philosophy of success through self-improvement and self-governance. And that's really the important part here, because it was this notion, self-governance, that the cities who received these grants needed to pay to maintain and run them would change the public's perception of public funding for libraries forever. So we'll be getting into that whole process. So really, we're talking about like New York's public library expansion and also Carnegie, the man and this program that he started. But listener, this is a special episode, a crossover podcast episode, Whoa. because to explore this question even further, we're going to head out to Brownsville, Brooklyn, to pay a visit to a Carnegie library built by Carnegie and talk about some of these issues with the hosts of the Brooklyn Public Library podcast, Borrowed, Chrissa Corbett Kavoris and Adua Adusi. We thought we would check in with a host of Borrowed about how the New York City Carnegie Libraries are holding up a hundred years after their construction. So join us as we flip through the pages of the life and libraries of Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie. 
So, Tom, before we begin, we need to address something that I think may be controversial. Uh Uh-oh. And that is how we say the name of our central figure here today. I think you say it Andrew. (laughs) I kind of meant his last name, actually. Oh, Carnegie. So, we are going to take the, I think, controversial uh, stance and say Carnegie, because every person we talk to for this show said Carnegie, and we refer to one of his most famous gifts in New York City as Carnegie Hall. But the fact is, he pronounced his name Carnegie, or even Carnegie. Right. And in fact, you know, when you're watching a PBS special with special funding from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, maybe you could say Carnegie and I can I can say Carnegie and we'll, we'll call the whole thing off. <laughs> or maybe when we're addressing the man, we'll say Carnegie, but addressing the institutions that he created, Carnegie. <laughs> I'm sticking with Andrew. <laughs> okay. Anyway, Andrew Carnegie Carnegie was born on November 25th, 1835 in Dunfermline, Scotland. His father was a weaver. They were living in a town of weavers who were unfortunately financially strapped during this period due to the ups and downs of the trade during the Industrial Revolution. As a result, the Carnegies immigrated to the United States in 1848, settling in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, which was a town that early in the 20th century would be annexed into Pittsburgh. And today the name Carnegie Carnegie is synonymous in many ways with Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. much more so than New York. Yes, I, I, I would, would argue. Agree, yeah. it, it's hard to imagine Pittsburgh without Carnegie. Or Carnegie without Pittsburgh, honestly. In 1849, so when he was just 14 years old, he became a messenger boy for a telegraph company and becoming so proficient at being able to just translate code without writing it down, just a very bright young man being able to listen to all this code, that then he became a telegraph operator. Oh, he could actually translate the the Morse code without writing it down at all, just on the fly. Yeah, (laughs) an unusual gift (laughs) at at an unusual time for the telegraph because who in the 1840s would find the telegraph an important tool of business, Tom? Would it be a certain industry that was gathering steam, Greg? <laughs> the railroad? Yes. Thanks to the the railroad needed the telegraph. Right. Couldn't operate without it. And I guess if they were in Pittsburgh, if they were in Pennsylvania, it, it would be the, the Pennsylvania Railroad. Yes. And so, indeed, in 1853, he was hired to be a telegraph operator for Penn Railroad. Uh, just about 50 years before they would be digging those tunnels under the Hudson <laughs> River. Believe it or not, to tie it to our last show. And over the next several years here, Andrew would work his way into very lucrative managerial positions for the Penn Railroad. It was through his connections here that he also became involved in many investment opportunities, shall we say, taking advantage of insider information. To quote from author David Nassau's excellent biography on Andrew Carnegie, quote, There were other ways to make money with the new railroad. 
those who knew where the track was going and where the stations and railroads would be located could make fortunes by buying property cheaply and selling it at a premium when news of the route was disclosed. Isn't that sort of insidery information illegal, Greg? Uh, yes, it would be. To continue from his book, quote, Carney was doing nothing out of the ordinary or illegal by taking advantage of his connections to make a quick profit from buying and selling real estate and securities. Insider trading in securities would not, in fact, be outlawed until 1934 with the passage of the Securities and Exchange Act. But this sort of practice in the 1850s here was pretty common, mm-hmm. right? I guess that's why it would eventually become illegal. It would be abused and become illegal, yeah. But Carnegie's fortune then would begin here uh, in the 1850s in these investments and trading schemes? Yeah, I mean, I only really bring it up to, to say that Carnegie was extremely wealthy at a very young age, well before he got into the industry that he would later define, and that is the production of iron and steel. And Carnegie gets into the steel production business partially through this connection, right, with the railroads. With the railroads. Yeah, he actually makes another detour during the Civil War into bridge construction, making a lot more money on speculative bond sales, and then from that, he ventures into the iron and steel business Uh and basically dominates the U.S. market at a time when tariffs are actually affecting foreign manufacturers and at the same time of a massive post-war railroad boom. That boom and the the construction of the transatlantic railroad systems would use a lot of Carnegie steel to lay their tracks. Yeah, and the railroads then would also be transporting that steel upon their own tracks. Some of the railroads that he was still invested in. Yes. It's a (laughs) win-win. And let's not forget that there's another great use of steel that arrives around the 1880s. And that is, of course, the invention of the skyscraper. The skyscraper that uses steel frame construction. Now, while this massive industrial empire was thriving in Pittsburgh, Carnegie, maybe not surprisingly, chose to live in New York City. And do you know why he wanted to live in New York and not in his business center? Just practically speaking, he couldn't really escape the influence of New York high society if he wanted to build upon these massive business connections that Mm. were all forming here. It It was America's financial capital, after all. And he, and he was great at networking. I mean, I think that um, Malcolm Gladwell would call him a connector. <laughs> a natural-born connector from the railroad to the boardroom here. Sounds like a game of Monopoly <laughs> at a certain point. Well, he is, Mr. He is the literal Mr. Monopoly. <laughs> well, anyway, this would include an office in New York at 57 Broadway, just a little south of Trinity Church, which would be a headquarters for many of his business endeavors. That was his office, but where did he live? Well, for a while in the 1870s, for instance, he lived in many luxury hotels. Uh, After 1874, he spent a time at the Hotel Windsor up at 46th and 5th Avenue. Now, in 1886, after the death of his mother and his marriage to a young Louise Whitfield, Andrew moved his bride to a new townhouse at 5 West 51st Street, right off of 5th Avenue. And he's moving into a mansion, like, in the midst of Vanderbilt's, right, here at Fifth Avenue. Literally around the corner. 
from a bunch of Vanderbilt mansions here. So he really is a part of the upper 10, the upper crust of New York, although a lot of his philosophies might suggest that he wished otherwise. Yeah, actually. he because he was quite public about how he felt about wealth, about accumulating wealth, and the obligation of the wealthiest Americans um, mm-hmm. in terms of what to do with their wealth. Yes. Now, our story is going to, from this point on, is going to veer very far from the steel mills into the quiet of libraries here. But I do need to mention what's happening in the background of many of the philanthropic endeavors that we're about to speak about. Because back in Pittsburgh, Carney was having some issues with his steelworkers, especially at a steel mill that he had bought in 1883 in Homestead, Pennsylvania. Steel production had never been more profitable for Carnegie. And at this moment here at Homestead, the the workers were demanding a raise. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't having it. Well, actually, he was kind of hands off of this whole situation. One might even say irresponsibly removed from this whole situation. Absent. Passive aggressive or just simply away on many of his European trips. So he put the situation in the hands of industrialist Henry Clay Frick, who was also part of the company and fought with union members in the summer of 1892, which led to a catastrophic burst of violence on July 6th of that year between the union strikers and hundreds of agents hired by Frick from the Pinkerton Detective Agency. In the end, 16 people were killed in the violence of this action, Stunningly, this was a major short-term victory for Frick, who essentially crushed the union and workers' rights in this region for a generation or more. So a really ugly period in American labor history and a stain, really, on both of the names and reputations of Henry Clay Frick and also, by extension, Andrew Carnegie. And that is the same Mr. Frick of a certain collection on Fifth Avenue. Oh, yeah. A museum built from his Fifth Avenue home. I cannot wait, by the way, for us to dive into the story of the Frick collection in a future show. And a wonderful (laughs) collection it is. It is, yes. But whether or not you want to criticize Carnegie for his style, how he handled the situation, by this point... In his own career, Carnegie had given over almost his all of his time to higher literary pursuits and philanthropy. Uh, for instance, he was a huge music lover. He loved music so much that in 1891, he built New York a brand new music venue, a city that badly needed a brand new music venue. That would, of course, be Carnegie Hall. He was passionate about music. He was passionate about church organs. He was passionate about peace and pacifism. And he was, of course, extremely passionate about libraries and about the transformational possibilities and power of books upon especially young people who could really improve their lot in life by reading. And the thing is about libraries in the United States, that's kind of hard for us to believe today because they are so like omnipresent. But if we just jump to, say, 1898, okay, there was a survey that was done by the U.S. Board of Education that found in 1898 that there were 637 public libraries in the United States. 600 
and 37. Which for a large country is not really a lot. No, and they were not evenly distributed either. They were mostly along, you know, wealthier communities on the eastern seaboard and larger communities. Many of them were also like operated by women's clubs, uh, operated out of churches. You know, they were not public libraries as we know them today. Mm -hmm. So that was in 1898. Yeah. Is that correct? So to rewind a little bit, when was his first library endowment? Actually, back in 1881, when he was traveling Mm. abroad, and yeah, because the first one actually was located outside of the United States. It was back in his hometown of Dunfermline, Scotland. And this is not a surprising gesture for a philanthropist in the late 19th century. They usually give money to the place where their heart is. That's right. He would spend money on a place that meant something to him. Now, once he returned from his trip abroad, he would start funding, you know, some American libraries as well. But in a similar vein, at first, in towns that were home to his steel mills. So again, places that meant something to him. First was in 1886, back in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, then in Braddock, Pennsylvania, and then in 1890, one to Pittsburgh, and also one to Johnstown, which replaced the library that had been washed away in the horrific flood of 1889. And that is a separate story. Carnegie is also somewhat implicated in that flood, as as well as many, many other industrialists who were members of a private club. We don't have time to get into it, but let's just say that these gifts of libraries would sort of fit in with that sort of, you know, his role as a kind of benevolent patron to provide for the people who worked or who were somehow affected by his business. And these first libraries in particular are quite fancy, right? I mean, they're they're rather decked out. Oh, he, he spent lavishly on them. For example, he spent $481,000 on that library, that first one in Allegheny. And it wasn't just, you know, a library. It also included a giant music hall that sat over a thousand people. There was an art gallery in there. I read that the Braddock one actually had a bowling alley. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, do you check out bowling balls? I mean, how does that work? But oh. I love I love that as a concept. I really think that they should bring back bowling alleys. You know, <laughs> libraries are looking for new ways to be like fun and relevant. So now Pittsburgh and the Pittsburgh area has a lot of fine libraries. And to mm-hmm. this day, they do. When did he break out of this area to look to other places? Well, on November 28th of 1893, okay, opened the very first, what we would call, typical Carnegie Library in the small town of Fairfield, Iowa. According to Theodore Jones, in his excellent book, Carnegie Libraries Across America, two years previous, in December of 1891, Iowa State Senator James Wilson traveled from Washington up to New York to dine with Andrew Carnegie in his New York mansion, and while he was there, asked for funding for a public library back in Fairfield, Iowa, which was his hometown. And Carnegie agreed to give $40,000 for its construction. So this is a bit of a test library for him. This, did you say 1893, uh-huh, right? Yep. Carnegie doesn't have a particular connection to this town. None. So what was the reaction of the community here? Well, the, the community was thrilled, obviously. But it wasn't just a reaction in the community. It was actually outside in other communities that they took note because it really made news. Just for fun, I I searched on newspapers.com 
for the story, mm-hmm. and I, I saw that it was picked up by dozens of papers around Iowa, Kansas, even Tennessee, many other states. For example, in the next week's Sioux City, Iowa newspaper, the Sioux City Journal, they carried the piece going into more detail about just how lavish that new first library was. Well, you know how gossip spreads in small towns here. I imagine that the other places uh, nearby must have gotten really excited by this and maybe would have wanted one themselves. Absolutely, especially as the country was, you know, sort of developing and growing westward as towns were looking for beautiful new civic buildings to sort of distinguish them from their neighbors. Well, and libraries would almost automatically become the center of town, especially for smaller towns. Right. But here in 1893, with this first library in Iowa, it sort of planted the seed. Some people thought it was just one-off philanthropy on Carnegie's part. I don't think anybody ever dreamed that it was the beginning of what would become the gigantic Carnegie Library program. So after Fairfield, it sounds like he saw some interest in this program and ramped up his philanthropy here. Rather slowly at first. Another would be funded three years later in Pennsylvania in 1896, then one in Maine, again not related to him, and then the next year in 1898, he gave three libraries in one year, so it's starting to get around, and then stick with me, because the next year, in 1899, he funded the construction of 26 libraries. Imagine, suddenly, there's a guy who just funded 26 new libraries in towns. I mean, then the word really gets around. I mean, the next year, 1900, he only gave 11, but the year after that, in 1901, he gave 132 new libraries. The next year, 1902, 128. The next year, 1903, 203 libraries were constructed with Carnegie's money. That's an insane number of libraries (laughs) to just fund all over the country. What changed with Carnegie by this point? Well, Well, for one thing, that big jump, you know, from 11 libraries in 1900 to 132 in 1901, It happened in 1901, the same year that Carnegie would sell out uh, his company, which you'll talk about in a minute, to J.P. Morgan. And he basically retired from business to dedicate himself to philanthropy. So the moment where Carnegie, where this really ramps up, is where he really just dedicates himself and his life to funding libraries. In all, from 1886 until 1919, the year that Andrew Carnegie died, he funded the construction of 1,689 libraries in the United States. But we're talking very generally here, him giving libraries to places all over the country. How did this actually work precisely? How did he just give a building to a city or a town? Well... One thing that I find really extraordinary about this is that there really wasn't, at the beginning, an official program, you know? It didn't even really have a name. I mean, it's kind of called the Carnegie Library Program today, just to be able to talk about it. And many of the libraries that he funded are often referred to as Carnegie Libraries, but that wasn't even a requirement. The process was really pretty simple. Community officials would would often write to Carnegie himself, and they would ask him to fund a library in their communities. But the whole process 
was administered and organized by his personal secretary, a man named James Bertram. Now, you can imagine that the, the word was spreading pretty quickly in these library circles that Bertram was the man, you know, who really ran this program. Mm-hmm. So applicants started actually just addressing Mr. Bertram directly, trying to get his attention. And would they simply just request Mr. Carnegie for a library in, in just as a letter, just to, like Santa Claus? Like, please give us <laughs> <Yes>. a library? <laughs> well, they would often write, like, explaining their need. At the beginning, there wasn't like a, a form. There was no, you know, online application to fill out. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, no drop down menus. Today, I'm sure that there would be like freelance library application coaches to help you through the <laughs> yes. process. But at the time, no, they would just write a letter asking for a library for their community. And for the most part, Andrew Carnegie would then agree to fund the construction of a library building in those communities that applied, giving a grant that was loosely based on the population that it served. So, and that usually averaged about 2 to $3 per person in their community. So, for example... Imagine there's a community of about 10,000 people applying for a free public library. You could expect a grant to be offered of between twenty dollars and $30,000. I mean, sometimes he offered much more, but that was sort of the, the general range. But there had to be some kind of strings attached here. What assurances did a community need to give the Carnegies in order to convince him to build a library? There certainly were conditions, and Bertram was the man who would enforce those conditions Mm -hmm. as best he could. The deal was basically this. Carnegie would supply the funds to construct the building. However, the towns would have to provide the land for for the library, and they would also, importantly, have to agree to maintain the libraries, which would mean that they would have to provide a budget that covered adequate staffing for the library and also maintenance. And these libraries would have to be open and free to use. Carnegie was going to build the libraries. He wasn't going to operate them. That's correct. And the the communities had to agree in writing that they would provide a a budget that would be equal to 10% of the grant that Carnegie gave. So back to that $20,000 grant that we're imagining for Mm -hmm. this town of 10,000 people, the town would have to agree to provide a budget of at least $2,000 a year to operate their library. Why did he care so much about how these libraries were being operated in the first place? Well, it would, he wanted to make sure that they succeeded and that they remained open. But it also spoke to his philosophy, right, about, you know, his kind of Horatio Alger style uh, belief that, like, anybody could succeed, you know, if they had the proper initiative mm-hmm. and self-determination. And he believed that the communities needed to feel invested in these libraries themselves. And by passing laws or doing, you know, whatever decrees necessary to pass those budgets, it would force the population in those towns where he was funding the library to recognize the value of those institutions. He, he thought that if he just gave the money for the operations as well and paid for the salaries, those communities might just take those institutions for granted, mm-hmm. but not if they had to fund the operations. Did he care how they looked? Could they be avant-garde? Did they have to have a kind of a a sort of uniform style to them? He he gave a lot of leeway to the communities. He didn't really set any rules about what the buildings should look like. 
because, you know, most of these grants were given out in the first two decades of the 20th century, and many were given out in the first decade, this was a time when the Beaux-Arts style was sort mm-hmm. of the dominant style, and these were civic buildings, you know, and a lot of civic buildings were constructed as well with columns and and elements that sort of conjured up images of like a Greek temple or mm-hmm. you know, stately ancient civic buildings. Connections to classical studies. Right. And lofty ideals, you know, so it's no big surprise that the dominant style of Carnegie libraries, but not the only, would be things built in that sort of Beaux-Arts style. Mm-hmm. And there was no rule that said they had to be called a Carnegie library. That's just something that they could opt to do. Many did just as a gesture to the man who bequeathed the, you know, such a large sum of money to construct the buildings. So by the year 1919, and the year that Andrew Carnegie dies, there were 3,500 public libraries total in the United States, and construction of about half of them was paid for by Andrew Carnegie. And several dozen of those libraries were built in New York City. That's right. 67 would be built in the five boroughs. So how do Carnegie libraries get to New York City? How does Carnegie handle New York City and the New York library system that the city already has. We'll get to Carnegie and New York's public libraries after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, The Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. So we've got Andrew Carnegie and his library program, Mm -hmm. but in the city where he lives, where he's receiving these applications, that city, New York, already has libraries. The very first library in New York was founded in 1754, and that was the New York Society Library, founded in a room in City Hall, the building which would become known as Federal Hall. And of course, the New York Society Library is still around today. Uh, I'm a member, in fact. I get a lot of my books (laughs) out of the Society Library. It's up on East 79th Street. It's It's a a fabulous place. It really is. They have tea and cookie breaks, Greg. (laughs) As would be appropriate for a library that is an example of a subscription library. And that was how it was when it opened in 1754. Meaning that you pay a fee and borrowers back in the day would be referred to as shareholders. Oh. Now, in the early 19th century, the cities of New York and Brooklyn had several private reading rooms and Athenaeums, which also had libraries. I'm sorry, say that again? And Athenaeums. (laughs) Is it Athenaea? It probably is, but we're not saying Carnegie writes, so why should we say Athenaeum correctly? The plural of Athenaeum. Somebody will know. Yes, well, so... Not surprisingly, access to those spaces was geared to young white men of wealth. The university systems, the higher education systems of the United States were relegated to this very small number of people, white, young white men of wealth, and libraries really reinforced this separation during this period. And books were expensive. Yeah, that's why, I mean, most of these were subscription libraries. There were also, at this time, research libraries. And there's two important ones that I want to mention here at this time. One of them was opened by John Jacob Astor in 1848. It was opened after his death the same year. Opened on Lafayette Street on Astor Place or near Astor Place. Yes, the Astor Library. Today, that is the home of the public theater with Joe's Pub which was, you know, Hair and Hamilton and Bowery Boys Halloween specials and (laughs) other type of shows have debuted there, but I digress. Uh, Heavy hitters. (laughs) But anyway, the Astor Library has been home here since 1848, was greatly expanded in 1859, and became one of America's most famous libraries and an incredibly important place for budding writers and researchers of the Gilded Age. Now, the other library I want to mention is Uptown, the Lennox Library, opened by bibliophile James Lennox, opened in 1877 at Fifth Avenue between 70th and 71st Street. 70th and 71st Street. That seems like we're getting pretty close to somebody else we just talked about. Yes. Yeah. So the Lennox Library would later be torn down and replaced with a mansion slash future museum built by Henry Clay Frick. What a small, rarefied, and wealthy little world we've fallen into, Greg, (laughs) and will soon be rejected from. Anyway, Lennox's library was restricted, where the books were considered works of art and were certainly not for the enjoyment of the general public. So hardly a lending library. (laughs) No, not at all. You couldn't, if you lived, I don't know, on the Lower East Side in a tenement, would there have been any place for you to go in the 1870s or 80s? 
By then, you would have the New York Free Circulating Library, which was incorporated in the 1880s. Now, thanks to the ideals of the progressive era, which we're now in, in the 1880s, there was this idea of free knowledge and self-education and how that would help improve life in tenement districts, like the Lower East Side, for instance. The New York Free Circulating Library actually had several branches in the city. The first one was on Bond Street, but perhaps most notably is the Altendorfer branch on 2nd Avenue, right off of St. Mark's Place. I don't know if you happen to oh, if you can picture this really beautiful building. red brick yeah. building with some wonderful carvings in it. It's and a, German. Yes. it's In fact, it was funded by the German publisher Oswald Altendorfer. It was notable for having mostly German books and periodicals to service the German-Jewish population of this area back when it was known as Kleine Deutschland. So this seems like we're getting closer to our idea of a public library mm -hmm. here. But again, this is funded by a philanthropist for a specific community here. Yes. Kleine Deutschland. But then when would we get into more of a citywide library? Well, we talked a little bit about the roots of the New York Public Library in our show on Andrew Haswell Green. But to quickly recap, Green and his law partner, John Bigelow, were administrators to the estate of Samuel Tilden, the former presidential candidate and good friend of Green, who died in 1886. And he bequeathed his fortune of $2.4 million to, quote, establish and maintain a free library and reading room in the city of New York. So that's 1886. By the 1890s, these two other libraries I mentioned, the Lennox Library and the Astor Library, were both financially struggling. So in 1895, thanks to Green and Bigelow here, these collections were all combined with Tilden's money, or mm -hmm. the Tilden Trust, as it's called, to form a brand new entity on May 23rd, 1895, the New York Public Library. And that formation was 125 years ago? This year, yeah. Incredible. How cool. Happy birthday. Happy yeah. 125th New York Public wonderful? Library. Well, and in 1901, they would then consolidate with the New York Free Circulating Library, of oh. which the Odendorfer branch is one. And these locations would serve as the foundation for a set of new branch libraries throughout New York. That merger happens in 1901, so three years after the consolidation of the five boroughs. But the New York Public Library then would expand into the Bronx and also Staten Island. Yes. But meanwhile, Brooklyn and Queens had their own library systems. Well, yeah, I mean, they had had them for years. Brooklyn had a very long history of reading rooms and subscription libraries. In fact, the city of Brooklyn's first public library was opened as part of the Pratt Institute in 1888, founded by Charles Pratt, who was, of course, a, another mogul synonymous with oil and kerosene. A kind of philanthropic parallel to what Carnegie's doing here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Finally, in 1896, the city of Brooklyn would establish the Brooklyn Public Library. And that, of course, would continue to operate independently after consolidation. So 1896, 125 years ago, next year. <laughs> yes. Meanwhile, in Queens, before consolidation, of course, there were many independent communities that had their own individual libraries. 
1896, the same year as Brooklyn, the Long Island City Public Library, which was really just three libraries, a small system, was created in that year. Then after consolidation and the formation of Queens as a borough, that would expand and finally incorporate in 1907 as the Queens Borough Public Library. So lots of library plans sort of circulating. Three separate library systems in the five borough area. Libraries that may, in fact, be in need of new branch buildings. Which brings us back to Andrew Carnegie and his largest single library grant ever, which was to New York City. I found this article, Greg, um, in the New York Times, published March 16th, 1901. It basically sums it all up. Mm-hmm. Headline, Mr. Carnegie offers $5,200,000 to New York to establish 65 branches of the public library. Subhead, city must provide sites and guarantee the cost of maintenance. Mayor Van Wyck favors the plan. And it goes into detail about the plan, but the plan really is exactly the same plan and the same deal that we've been discussing throughout the show. Carnegie was offering the same thing to New York that he had offered elsewhere, but just on a vastly larger scale, $5.2 million. And this was specifically for branch libraries, because all these systems would have main library buildings, but these were specific to neighborhoods in each of these boroughs. Right. In 1901, for example, the New York Public Library, the construction of the New York Public Library main branch was underway on Fifth Avenue and 42nd. But this grant was for the branches to take those collections out into all of these neighborhoods. Now, I'm curious about the reaction, like community neighborhood reactions to this sort of gift. I can't imagine that everyone was thrilled about taking on this this ongoing expense of maintaining these local libraries. Right, because basically if you know, Carnegie is demanding the 10% be used to run and maintain these libraries and the, the grants 5.2 million. He's basically saying you, you have to promise that you'll spend at least $520,000 a year maintaining them. That's a huge expense. The same thing played out in New York that played out all across the country, which is that there was debate about whether or not his grant should even be accepted. In this case, you know, the the city leaders would have to decide. In other cities and states around the country, often voters would decide. And many times they would actually reject the offer because they would say that they just didn't have the money to pay for it. And New York was no different. I mean, that article that announces this new deal includes naysayers who are really dismissive of it, saying we need to pay for new roads and new sidewalks. Water lines, the expenses of consolidation because new buildings were being constructed to mm-hmm. help run the, the city more efficiently. There are a lot of other things to pay for. And this is you know happening right during the whole city beautiful movement where there are many people proposing all kinds of beautiful new ideas for the city. So many of which were dismissed. And so let's get down to specifics here. Where would New York City's Carney Branch libraries be built? Well, they would be located in all five boroughs. In Manhattan, the trustees would decide that they would need to construct a a branch library about every 10 blocks in order to adequately serve the population of the island. And they had this problem because, you know, Manhattan by 1901 
is pretty developed. It's pretty packed, yes. And they were going to have to construct libraries in each neighborhood, meaning even down, you know, in the most densely populated neighborhoods. So it could be very expensive to acquire the land. And there was somebody in charge of it on the, on the New York side. The, the trustees of the New York Public Library in 1901, when they got this grant, appointed a man named Allenson T. Briggs. He'd be sort of the point person, first in Manhattan, in the Bronx, and Staten Island, and then he would play the same role in, in Brooklyn and in Queens. He would be in charge of choosing the sites, of setting the standards. You know, he'd, be, he'd oversee the construction of all of these branch libraries. Was he also supervising the design of all the libraries so there was some sort of uniformity or? No, he didn't choose that. The The library directors actually turned to the professionals, you know, because, come on, New York in 1901 had some of the best architects in the world. Mm-hmm. So they, they appointed a three-person panel consisting of John Carrere of Carrere and Hastings, the architects of that other big library, the New York Public the main, yes. the, the main New York Public Library upon 42nd, Charles McKim of McKim Meaden White, of course, and Walter Cook, who came from the firm Bab Cook and Willard. And and that sort of VIP committee then would come up with sort of design standards and recommendations. Did they agree on a particular style for these libraries? Yeah, they they recommended that the branch libraries in Manhattan be designed in pretty much the same style, a kind of unified style, so that they would be easily recognizable from the street. Like you could walk down the block and look up and be like, oh, I know that building, even though I've never been on the street before. That's a New York public library. And that style is the Italian Renaissance revival style. And for the time, that was very important, and it did make them stand out because most of them were mid-block. Mm-hmm. They didn't have they didn't have real estate on the corners, and most of them at the time that they opened were larger than their neighbors. They they were taller, even though the design committee recommended that they be constructed most be constructed in three floors for the most part, and that each floor would have only one large reading room uh, in order to make it easier you know, to observe and sort of supervise. They also would recommend that a reading room be visible from the sidewalk so that passers-by could look over, look inside and see people sitting there reading and might be inspired to head in. Of the 39 libraries in Manhattan, Staten Island, and the Bronx, 15 would be designed by Carrera and Hastings, 12 would be designed by McKim, Mead, and White, and eight would be designed by Bab, Cook, and Willard. Only four libraries were designed by other firms. So, you know, there's a little bit of an inside job going on there, too. I thought it was interesting that uh, McKim, Mead, and White would put lanterns, by the way, on the, the outside the doors of their libraries. And in Brooklyn, meanwhile, uh, several of the branch libraries were designed by the Brooklyn-based architect William Tubby. The first of these branch libraries, remember that the gift was in 1901. The first would open in 1902 on December 13th. That was the Yorkville branch up at 222 East 79th Street. And nearly all of the the remaining libraries would be constructed in Manhattan between 1903 and 1909. Although the final library designed by Carrera and Hastings wouldn't be finished. It would be the Hunts Point Library up in the Bronx completed in 1929, but that's really an outlier. Uh, Most of them were constructed in that first 
decade. And the same thing for the Brooklyn branches. Most of them uh, had been constructed by 1908. But as we sit here 110 years or more later Mm -hmm. from the construction of many of these branch libraries, and many of them, most of them are still with us, there are some problems that have crept into the legacy of these buildings. Yeah, many problems, obviously, around the issues of accessibility. People would not have thought about accessibility issues back in the day that they were constructed. The purpose of libraries has altered as well. Completely. I mean, today we think of libraries as places of community building, of learning new skills, you know, learning new languages, support groups, and things like that. And we don't think of them as these sort of rarefied temples of knowledge, you know, that I think that Andrew Carnegie did. And many of the designs of these Carnegie libraries, thus by the mid 20th century, felt kind of outdated or out of sync with the times. And because of that, hundreds of Carnegie libraries around the country would be demolished. And and some in New York City would also be demolished or repurposed. Five in Manhattan would be demolished. Three in Brooklyn would be demolished. Although most are still operating as public libraries. So in order to see how a Carnegie library has adapted into the 21st century, and we haven't even talked about the technological changes and the sort of heating and cooling changes that have occurred in buildings. Well, we decided to head to the Brownsville neighborhood in Brooklyn. There at the Brownsville branch of the Brooklyn Public Library, we met up with Krissa Corbett Kavoris and Adwa Adusi, hosts of the Brooklyn Public Library's Borrowed podcast. So here we are, Greg, at the Brownsville branch of the Brooklyn Public Library. We're heading in, and hello, Adwa. Hi, Chris. Welcome. Hi. So nice to meet you. Hi. Welcome. Thank welcome. You. Hi. Shaking hello. hands. Shaking hands. We just headed inside, and there is a librarian's desk right in front of us. That's right. right. Reference desk right in front, right in the middle. Okay. And to the right, we see a children. I'm assuming that's a children's section because we see little tables. Little tables for the little folk. And on the left side... Is our main reading room for the adult space, and we have computers, and we have tables, and the full perimeter of the branches lined with books. Okay. And, and directly in front of us, behind the reference desk are stairs that lead up to a kind of mezzanine level. That's right, yes, that, which was, I think, also at one point reading space and is now the Brownsville Library teen zone. So we're standing in a library space with a very high ceiling. And why don't we ask Adjua here, what are the key features? Because you work here. I do. I, this is my branch, my home branch. Um, so like you said, the high ceilings are definitely a key feature in standard Carnegie branches the high ceiling in the past it had a huge skylight it doesn't have one right now mm-hmm. um, but that is another feature that spread throughout the borough big windows lots of light dark wood paneling would have been a big feature right now it's lighter wood so we've tried to brighten it up um, I see some fireplaces too yes there are two fireplaces on either end of the large reading room on the first floor and that was also standard this particular branch opened in 1908. What was the neighborhood like that this library was supporting? In 1908, the neighborhood definitely was very different. It was mainly made up of Eastern European Jews. And so in 1908, once those doors opened, there was a line of people outside of the door waiting to get in. I believe the stats are that, you know, over 3,000 books circulated on that first day alone, which was the most uh, that the Brooklyn public library system had ever had up until that point. So it was a very major moment um, for the library system. 
Do you know if the, there have been plans to construct this even before his gift, or was it really that gift that made this possible? Well, before the opening, there was a library in place. It was a local organization right in this area. It wasn't on this land, mm-hmm. uh, but in this corner of Brownsville. People already recognized that you know people were assembling and they needed an actual space. What would the services have been like back in 1908? What kinds of things would have been presented to those first people who walked in? Well, I definitely know that a lot of the materials weren't only in English. We had maybe up to nine languages that were being offered for the community to meet them where they were at. Already Um, in 1908? Already in the early 20th century, yes. Um, So that was really encouraging to know that at least on that level, you know, that need was being met. I think one of the things that, you know, we... This is Krissa. I think one of the things that we know about these spaces and what they were designed for and how that has changed, right, is that Carnegie, as I'm sure you guys have talked about already, had this very, I think, kind of narrow band of what he thought these spaces were for. And they were really for, like, the betterment of the working man. So that's already two limiting factors. Um, Of course, there were children in this space. You know, I'm assuming that they were welcome if they were quiet and they were reading and they were, quote, bettering themselves, you know, which is very different than how we imagine what library services are now. Quietness doesn't come into it, right? If, If learning is loud, if it's rambunctious, if learning is diverse in the ways that you get there, you know, we feel very strongly, librarians like Adjua feel very strongly that we are providing the services to enrich your life. It's not necessarily a stack of books that's going to do that every time. Libraries today are much different, and yet you have to share the same space as with those people from 1908. (laughs) Exactly. We're very much like time travelers almost. We are definitely sharing the same space. It hasn't changed very much since the 1908 opening, but the purpose There are computers. Well, yes, there are computers. (laughs) That's true. They could not have expected that one, Uh, but they couldn't have expected most of what the programming is right now. So we're sharing the space, but the needs aren't necessarily being met in the same way. What do either of you see as the biggest challenges to to making these Carnegie libraries still relevant as spaces today? On that front, a lot of it has to do with programming. So that's why I couldn't even imagine what the programs were in 1908. The ceilings, they create echo. It would be great if we could be reveling in quiet solitude, but that's not what's happening when you walk in the doors, um, especially when, you know, lots of people are in the space. Are you su- suggesting it gets loud in here? <laughs> it, it, it does get loud. Um, <laughs> and we never shush anyone. Really? Librarians don't shush anymore? We, we don't. We try not to. We don't shush. Yeah, yeah. We don't shush. <laughs> Another thing about sound, at least in this building, is that HVAC, so electrical engineering, that sort of stuff, and cooling things, heating things, we're not using those fireplaces anymore, right? <laughs> so we have machinery to help the temperature in the building stay maintained but all that machinery is like really loud so that elevates that's why it's also quite loud in the building so then people are aren't whispering they're definitely talking loudly over one another Mm. let me ask you this could the library system in brooklyn and new york could the system benefit from another carnegie coming along with some sort of amazing gift to sort of update these spaces i mean we'll just if you're out there (laughs) 
right, <laughs> Mr. or Mrs. Foundation of Money, we'll we'll take we'll take it and we'll build another another 18 libraries to benefit Brooklyn. There's no such thing as too many. We, and we do see, you know, when we get the types of um, of funding that allows us to completely renovate a space or or start, you know, start from scratch. It's it's remarkable what not just the librarians and not just what our institutional assumption is, but what the patrons and the community tell us they want. You know, they want spaces that they can make music. They want spaces that they can have meetings. They want spaces that they feel safe, that they're not, you know, necessarily like we, this is one big room, right? We have a teen mezzanine, which is great. But, you know, teens are a, are a, a, a group of people that have completely different needs from from their peers, either older or younger. And, and they are, I think, an audience that we had struggled to serve. And certainly in 1908, no one was serving. And to be able to create designated spaces for them to grow and feel safe and learn is just a huge priority that these buildings really were not designed to do. And this is really, I think, the future of libraries, too, the idea that now it is transparently what it has always been, which is more of a community center, more than just a place where you go read old newspapers. Although right? I would see, imagine that it's also a community center that's the intention is still for the betterment of the community yes. and for the people who live there. Absolutely, but the betterment... Which is very similar to, to Carnegie's original way, That's decision. true, but we're not as narrow in terms of what that betterment looks like or how you can achieve that. But even if this, this library opened in 1908, it did change in ways, um, not, not just adopting new computers, but it, it also changed and developed over the course of the 20th century to fit the changing needs of the community, right? Absolutely, yeah. So one of the greatest things to come out of this branch was the Stone Avenue branch, which is about six blocks away. It wasn't called the Stone Avenue branch then. It was called the Brownsville Children's uh, Library to serve all the children who were coming to the Brownsville branch, and we could not contain them. Only children. Only children. So not a children's section, a children's library. A whole freestanding building that was made to look sort of like a castle, um, a whimsical castle for children, yeah. And that's still open today? (laughs) That is still open, yes. Do they allow adults in? Yes, it is no longer just a children's (laughs) library. Um, Though it does have an absolutely beautiful full-size chessboard right in the middle of the library. There's a word wall around the wall of the first thousand words that you want to make sure your children are hearing. It definitely, it has the spirit of the the Brownsville Children's Library. But no, the Stone Avenue Library welcomes everyone, as do all of our branches. (laughs) And you two have an entire episode of borrowed on the subject of that Stone Avenue branch. Yeah, that's right. In our first season, we have a whole episode about children's librarianship and, and the birth of the movement because a lot of it comes to Brooklyn. A lot of it started in Brooklyn. Um, so we go into the history of Stone Avenue and, and the woman who helped create it. So it's fascinating. And there are exciting things afoot in the near future here for Brownsville, right? And in the form of a new library? Yes, that's correct. We are renovating in 2021, we're hoping. So we've had a lot of time over the last year and a half to get community feedback as well as staff feedback about what the space will look like for the next hundred years. And, And what did you hear from the community? Well, they certainly appreciate the building and it's sort of architectural majesty Mm -hmm. and they want to keep and hold on to some of those aspects but they also want the space to be safe as Krista said they want uh, quiet reading zones they want play zones they want to record you know their next big musical hit they want to bring children in and have more story times they want more computer time so they still love those original Carnegie buildings but they want them to be brought up to the 21st century Absolutely. And, you know, into the 22nd century, but still inside the shell of this early 20th century building, which is still so beautiful. 
Well, thank you guys for, for giving us some insight into the Brownsville branch and into the Carnegie Library system in general. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Now, for more on the story of Carnegie Libraries, for the rest of the story, head on over. The final chapter. The final chapter. Head over to Brooklyn Public Library's Borrowed Podcast right now. Waiting in your feed is a kind of second part of the story of the Brooklyn Public Library. They're going to take it in another direction, and we are making guest appearance on their show. We are thrilled to be on with Krissa and Adwa. So that's the borrowed podcast by the Brooklyn Public Library. Check out that episode. But we need to just go back one final time to the man here, to Mr. Carnegie himself. Think about the Brownsville Library, which opened in December of 1908. Carnegie was, of course, a very different person by that point. As you alluded to, in March of 1901, he had sold his steel endeavors to J.P. Morgan in the largest corporate takeover in history up to that time. Carnegie would eventually be ranked the second richest American who ever lived, second only to J.D. Rockefeller. Carnegie would build his last home in New York in 1902 at 2 East 91st Street at 5th Avenue using those library architects. Oh, from Babcock and Willard. Yes. And that 5th Avenue mansion would be located so far uptown uh, that they would really even start calling that entire neighborhood after Mr. Carnegie. Yeah. Today, we call that area of the Upper East Side Carnegie Hill. In 1972... The house was given over to the Smithsonian, and today it's the home of the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. Now, in 1911, Carnegie established a trust. Today, it's called the Carnegie Corporation of New York, which still to this day endows tens of millions of dollars to many philanthropic causes. That library program would be overseen from here in its later years. Andrew Carnegie died on August 11th, 1919 at his home in Lenox, Massachusetts, and he's buried at Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. Andrew Carnegie would spend $41,478,689 on building public libraries in the United States, which doesn't even include the 830 that he paid for outside of the United States. In all... Carnegie would give more than $68 million of his fortune to the construction of public libraries. Please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for images. Uh, Well, first of all, from our discussion at Brownsville Library with the hosts of Borrowed, and then several images of more historic Carnegie branch libraries here in the city. That's BoweryBoysHistory.com. We'd also, of course, like to thank our patrons who support us on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash BoweryBoys. Because of your small monthly contributions, Greg and I are able to produce the Bowery Boys full time. We couldn't make the show without you. Now, for our Patreon-only bonus podcast, The Takeout, today, we're going to have just some musings from the two of us about the library system in general, and in particular, our unique relationships with Carnegie Branch Libraries back in our hometowns. That's right. Greg will talk about his Carnegie Library experiences in Springfield, Missouri, and I will talk about the Bellevue, Ohio branch. Greg, 
I found some real information about my hometown library in a 1908 book that I can't (laughs) wait to tell you about. That's the Bowery Boys Takeout, available to those who support us at the $5 and up level on Patreon.com. And you can join other patrons like James W. from Southhold, New York, Kim B. from New Jersey, Jim C. from Illinois, Lucian D. and Jeffrey S. from Colorado, Mark M. from California, Megan H. from Ontario, Canada, and Fiona A. from England. Many of whom undoubtedly have Carnegie libraries in their hometowns. I would imagine most of them do. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Mm-hmm.